Welcome. My name is Douglas Gabriel. I am a representative of the Anonymous Patriots, and we write intelligence articles. And we are going to be addressing in four different videos, this is one of them, the real nature of what people have begged us to expound upon, which is warlord bankers and brokers, a phrase that we have coined, a moniker which is very apropos for our day and age, because when you think of conspiracy theories, the first one that comes to mind is, of course, the Rothschilds, and then the second one is the Federal Reserve, and the Rothschilds own the Federal Reserve, and the warlord bankers own the Federal Reserve, and then people's eyes gloss over. So what we have done in the past is we've written a number of intelligence articles that have been a revelation for many to see that the industri military-industrial complex is owned by a small group of usually asset management companies, and behind them are banks. So we have literally broken it down in other articles and shown you this, but what we have not done, because it is so difficult, is to show you the true history of how money came into being, how it started to be misused, how the worship of literally demonic forces or the forces of greed in the seven deadly sins, and particularly greed is usually called mammon, how mammon and this worship really, unconscious or conscious worship of money, of mammon, has led us to where we're at today. And so when we are pointing at the symptomology of history, it often, we stumble because we can't really tell you parts of history that you've never heard. So the only way to do this is to go back and literally walk you through a true history of how money came to be and how the warlord banking families learned early on that war was a great profit and that usury, putting interest on a loan, is a tremendously powerful tool that even early on in ancient Babylonian times led to debtor's prison so that you could take out a loan and the person you took it from, though they may just be a private individual, a family, what we call warlord banking families, they can put you in jail. They can basically control your life. And in later in the development of money, particularly in the development of Venetian banking, in the core of Venetian banking, which was centered around the Republic, they could decide, the group of three could decide to assassinate anyone they wanted who stood in their way or who got in their way. And this is still something that happens in today's world. And then people always are saying, but can you explain to us how it is that these rich elite worship gods like Malak? And why do so many of them end up being involved in horrible things? So the richer they are, the more horrible the accusations are about them. And if you look closely, these are not just accusations, these are realities. So you find all kinds of strange satanic worship related to very wealthy people and people in Hollywood and people who have lots of money in offshore accounts. They tend to go psychopathic on us and then they get involved in Satanism or all kinds of cults or worship of literally uh, the god Malak, the god who is the um, Canaanite god who asks for human children to be sacrificed, or pedophilia, or human trafficking, or all of these different bizarre things are actually part and parcel of what you will find in history if you look at the original bankers.
Most people have no idea how banks came to be. And when you hear the story of how they came to be, they might tell you the story back to Britain and the founding of the Bank of England and the Central Bank, or they might go back all the way to, say, German bankers, the, the Fuggers, who were basically controlled Europe um, before the Rothschilds came along. They were the, uh, the banking family that really literally controlled Europe. And before that, they had come out of Venice. And so you say, what Venice? How did Venice come to be such a powerful banking kingdom? And how does Venice have anything to do with England? And that's what this article, that's what this intelligence report from the Anonymous Patriots is addressing. And that's what we're going to be addressing in these four different short segments, which will be audios that will ex basically expand upon what we found to be four great explanations of how Venetian banking started, how it came to take over Europe and basically create a some of the worst things that ever happened in Europe, from wars to plagues to uh, a banking crisis to bankruptcies to just the 30 years war. I mean, literally these bankers created wars. So we're going to basically show you these four articles. But to show you the four articles who are written by really great economists, very brilliant people, they're very dense, they're very hard to read, but they're the most um, compact way to say what needs to be said. And because they all build on this theme that we've laid out, you will see that they in fact agree with one another. And the historical facts in here can all be checked, but when they're put in the frame that these authors and that we ourselves have put them into, you will see that when we say warlord bankers and brokers and warmongers, we're not kidding. That is no exaggeration whatsoever. And when we say debt enslavement, we are talking about something that has been going on since ancient Babylonian times in the Hammurabi Code. And it was basically handed on down through culture until we have it in today's world, and we accept it as if it's something normal, but it is not. Debt enslavement is not normal. And we go into that in the article. But the article that we're addressing today is, the it, well, we entitle that particular chapter, The History of Italian Banking, but the article is written by Paul Gallagher. And it's called 650 Years Ago, How Venice Rigged the First and Worst Global Financial Crash by Paul Gallagher, printed in the American Almanac, September 4th, 1995. Now, this article does not play around. If you're not an economist, you may find it a little bit uh, complicated and dense, but I have abbreviated it, condensed it, reworked it, and I'm sorry, uh, Paul, but I have reworked your article so that it can be understood by the layman. Because it is so powerful and the insights in it are so dynamic that when you frame it properly, you will see that this has all been a natural progression of following the seven deadly sins. It's basically the path of perdition, as it's called in the Christian vernacular. It's called the road to hell, the path to hell. And it's the same old path. There's nothing really new in this path. And the people who started banks in Venice were building on what was already known in China and in India and in the Levant and ba you know in Babylon and and Canaan and all over the place in the Mediterranean. There were already monetary interests happening, and most of them started in temples. 
And as we tell you in previous uh, intelligence reports, that the temple coin was never supposed to be taken out of the temple. It was used to be to put into a device that would cause wonder and awe in the common person. In other words, if you went to Athens and you brought some grain that you were making as an offering to the gods so that next year you'd have good crops, you might also bring your excess that you're not going to sell that year, and the temple will take that and put it under your name and store it for you, which is a really nice thing, and then they'll give it to you. And if, in fact, there's a problem if there's a drought or something and there isn't a good year for crops, then the temple was all, would always hold back a little bit from the donations made to the temple so that they would always have grain. Grain was more important than gold or silver or any metal or any kind of coinage or fiat currency. Matter of fact, the first money was all based upon a shekel and the shekel was a, a, usually 180 grains of barley. That is what was given to the temples. It was as good as money or better than money because out of that grain could come more grain. Out of gold and silver does not come more silver. But the coins that they cast there, they would put sometimes the, perhaps the image of Athena on it. And as they traded in their grain as an offering for a coin, they would come and take that coin and put it into a machine. A machine that the common people couldn't understand that there were levers and gears and pulleys and so on and so forth. They'd put the coin in, and then from a statue of a god, water would come pouring out into their bowl. And then from that, they would make oblations with the water. They would drink the water, put the water on themselves. That was holy, sacred water. And it was done through magic. And the coin and the image of Athena on the coin showed that Athena herself had created this magical device. But they didn't understand it was a device or it was a machine. That's where coins came from. When you have that as a basis and a background and you realize that from the first temples, in other words, religions or the cultural mythologies that they believed in, controlled agriculture, it controlled economy, and it minted the first coins. But the first coins were not used in trade. Eventually, as we pull right out in the article, I'm not going to get into those details, it came to be that the coins left the temple and they left their sacredness and they became very commonplace and they were used then by bankers. Now, the common modern understanding of banking literally came out of San Marco in Venice. And banco means, uh, banco, banco, banca means a bench. And the coin traders, in other words, the money changers, just like in the temple when Jesus chased out the money changers, in the temple there's money changers and they trade money for objects that might be sacrificed or might be offered. Well, the money changers in Venice inside of St. Marco started to really speculate on grain because the uh, there was the grain region both uh, north of Naples and also into um, the northern ends of Italy and even further northwest of that. The Lombards basically had the greatest grain belt there in Europe at the time. And so that grain became coordinated through the Italian bankers in San Marco. And that was okay. It was basically what was going on before, but now instead of the temples doing it, it was done by a merchant. But they started to loan money they because these people working in these temples were not held to the Christian 
dogma and doctrine that you cannot charge interest on a loan called usury. So usury was forbidden by the Catholic Church. These Lombards, these Venetians, these Italians, uh, and some uh, Jews found ways to get around this, and they started charging interest. But it was very clever ways of charging interest. They would uh, not necessarily call it usury or interest. They would have other fees that were associated with these loans. So loans started to happen. And basically, the money changers became loan sharks. And then they became so powerful that they started loaning money to the Pope. And the Pope, of course, caused crusades. And crusades needed boats and armament and all the supplies, and they needed to be near where they were attacking. So Venice became the hub of launching the crusades for the Pope. As a matter of fact, the first bank of Venice was basically the money pulled together for the first crusade. And then the interest on that started banking. And because anytime you loan money for a war, well, if it's a successful war, then they're going to have the money to pay you back. And if it's not a successful war, you probably need to be on the other side too. So the Venetians were allowed by the Pope to actually trade and do business with the Turks, the Malmuks and, and others who were in the Levant, in the Holy Land. In other words, they were creating crusaders to go against other people in a war that they had financed, and on the other side, they had financed them also to be in the war. And so this became huge profit. And they would also hold the wealth of the royalty that were part of the crusade. And when they died in the crusade, they kept the wealth. This became a huge scam because as you were on the road to the Holy Land and once you left Venice, you were in basically enemy territory and you couldn't carry your wealth with you. So you would leave it in the bank in St. Marco. And if you died and you, you know, the, the bank had a rule. If you put the money in the bank, you were the only one who could take it out. So this became a scam and it literally became the scam of the Rothschilds with the goldsmiths and the way that they did uh, gold for credit and then they used credit notes and this is what made fiat currency the power that it was. Well, the Venetians, they didn't go to war. They built the ships and they uh, basically armed and supplied the crusaders and one crusade after the next just made Venice richer and of course um, Byzantium uh, also was rich in this way, but it was the Venetian Italian bankers that really set the pace because they developed what was called central banking. And central banking said, forget about the Pope. We have a republic, and each city is a republic of its own, much like the Greeks. And each city is going to have this committee of oligarchs who are the merchants and the bankers and the people who are the rich elite. And they will elect a committee of 10, and that committee of 10 will elect a committee of three, and the committee of three will run the republic. And in the committee of three, they will elect a doge. Well, actually, the whole assembly will elect the doge, D-O-G-E. And the doge and the, and the doge's palace in Venice was basically the equivalent of its own kingdom. They called it a republic, and they were separate from the pope. And they basically were the first people to have usury, have interest rates on loans. And they became so powerful and became such a 
incredible uh, sea uh, merchant force and military uh, force that nothing could stop the Venetian bankers. And they became just a few families, and it's all in the report here that we're talking about, this 650 years ago, how Venice rigged the first and worst global financial crash. It was all done by a few Italian banking families. Now, we all know a little bit about the Medici and the Florence banking families and the Florence that they created this special gold coin and the way that they manipulated Italy, Europe, financed the Pope or didn't finance the Pope. And whoever they financed, they were probably going to win because they had the greatest amount of money, which was, again, money taken from grain trade and then money taken from usury and then money taken from selling gold and silver and manipulating gold and silver markets, which then became the practice of these central banks in Venice, in Florence, in Genoa, in Seneca, and a few other places in in Italy. And they became so powerful that, that nothing could stop them. And the Pope himself basically then was loaned money and controlled by these Venetian bankers. In the end, most of Europe was infiltrated by the Venetian Lombards who became the money changers and the and the uh, Jewish Italian money lenders went throughout all of Europe and they became so insidiously ubiquitous that the kings in most uh, countries kicked them out at one point because they were basically in control of so much money and in control of land because they also were handling leases for the kings, handling money for the kings, all these things, wars, the proclivity of the kings and the, their capriciousness was all aided by the Venetian bankers. And they themselves were quite decadent, as we know. And Machiavelli, the um, basically he was more or less a political agent of the Medici. He was the example that then became the basis for many Italians, both philosophically and as bankers, and as religious teachers, they filtered all the way up through Europe until they entered into England. Now, generally, you'll see this as the German Northern bankers in Hamburg uh, and the Hanseatic League, which was the first spice trading league. They were so powerful on the open seas that they created great jealousy in the Dutch and in the English. And so the Dutch and the English created the Dutch and the British East India trading companies, and that basically became a war for spices and a war for fleecing countries, stealing gold and silver, and eventually the Venetian predatory economic central bank philosophy was filtered in to all aspects of Europe until the kings, the queens, and even those who became republics themselves kowtowed to this idea of central banks. And central banks always come back to a few warlord banking families and brokers and the warmongers, the politicians who support them. And so what we have in the article here by Paul Gallagher is the most insightful and most compact picture that I have ever seen. And it names each of the Italian families, most of whom we know little about, some of whom are still some of the most powerful people on the face of the earth, and we've never even heard their names. So therefore, 
When we were asked repeatedly to please explain what we're talking about with warlord bankers, it is about the history of Mammon, the history of the worship of a demon of greed, and these banking families, the, particularly the Venetian ones, and then the ones that spread throughout Europe and Germany in Holland and England, which then came and started the U.S. Federal Reserve here in America, and basically, yes, subsequently owns the controlling shares in the U.S. Federal Reserve. These banking families are, in fact, worshiping greed. And it's the same old greed that's been going on for a long time. And if we can pull them into the disinfecting light of day, then the darkness of their worship of mammon can be dispelled. And that is what this article is telling us, is who is exactly the culprits who have been doing this since the time of the First Crusades. And it continues to this very day. Modern wars are nothing more than crusades that are created by these warlord banking families. And so we want to thank Mr. Gallagher, and we want to be aware that if we can separate out these warlord banking families from the U.S. Federal Reserve, then we will know that the U.S. Federal Reserve is owned by a private corporation, and it can go bankrupt by simply us not paying them. So what they have set up since the 1200s, all these hundreds of years, is an ensconced system of central banks that has almost taken over every single nation on the face of the earth. There are only a few nations that do not have central banks, and only a few of them are owned by countries. Generally, they're owned by this group of bankers. Awareness and consciousness is what will be able to overcome these families. Because once they are called out and once we see who they are, it is easy to track them down and to find these paths of perdition that go straight to the worship of Mammon.